Hi there. <laughs> I know how to do an intro to a podcast. <laughs> I know. No, what I'm I doing. was delayed because I was delayed because I was hearing sounds of a toy. <laughs> <laughs> I got distracted. I love it. Hi there. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> well, I don't have a dog and a squeak toy, so I guess worse than you. But, you know, yeah, the sun is shining when it threatened to be a sunny, ugly, rainy, well, an ugly, rainy, disgusting thunderstorm of a day. Although I haven't left my apartment today, so who's to say? Who's to say? <laughs> what? Listen. I am doggo sitting. Yes, you are. And she heard something outside, and now she's barking. I love her. Um, I think she will be an important addition to our episode today. She will add a bit of levity as we yes. finally become a true crime podcast. <laughs> finally. Finally. It only took <laughs> us how many episodes? <laughs> Too many. Too, Too many. But we finally made it to where we all wanted to be. So buckle up, buttercups, because we're... <laughs> <laughs> oh man i actually have an idea for a series that we could do oh we should flesh that one out and and maybe make it a patreon only type thing true crime of us. so sexy and cool of us and i <laughs> love it <laughs> i'm stephanie and i'm elena and this is bet you wish this was an art podcast and that you wish. God, don't you fucking wish. Every day I wake up, Elena. <laughs> Every day I wake up. Life would be easier if this was an art podcast. But alas. But alas. We are not. Today we are a true crime <laughs> podcast. And also a, a Midwest gossip podcast. And also a Chicago Times podcast. And also a commentary on the turn of the 20th century podcast. And also a Let's sh Talk Shit About Modern Architecture podcast. And also an architecture episode. I love an architecture episode, Eleni. Yes. It is that time of the month. <laughs> My favorite time of the month. Yes. <laughs> so who are we talking about today? Eleni, we are finally... Uh, conquering the um, grandiose self-image of Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> um, and what's really funny about Frank Lloyd Wright is that most, I, I would like to say that he is like relatively well-known, even in the 20th of centuries, in the 21st of centuries even, where... yeah. You know, he's, so. he's an architect of Frank Lloyd Wright, at least the name comes in threes, gotta love a, an FLW house, and <laughs> I know we have, so at the museum, we have a Frank Lloyd Wright house on, on like, on site, and oh. every other day, it's people asking where that damn house is. So, you know, it's... <laughs> you can't get rid of him. <laughs> I can't. Every day I wake up, and I know Frank, originally Lincoln, now Lloyd, right? And I don't know if I'm better for it. I I'm not. doubt that you are, honestly. <laughs> Man, and just so much. And there's the, the Faye Jones school that, thankfully, we're not going to get into. But, like, an offshoot of someone who was a apprentice of Frank Lloyd Wright's. And, 
And then I'm just so tired of him. And I hope that with this episode, I have the strength to come to terms with this devil. (laughs) (laughs) And I can say, be gone, thought, and be done with him. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's get into it, Elena. So, Frank Lloyd Wright was born in 1867. And he is this American architect, designer, writer, and educator, and a cult leader. Elena, Hmm. you've overlooked the most important fact about Frank Lloyd Wright. Which part? He was born June 8th, so happy birthday, Frank Lloyd Wright, on the day we record this. And he's a Gemini. Oh, that explains a lot. (laughs) But also, happy birthday! Happy birthday, Frankie! Happy birthday, Frankie. He, uh... uh, (laughs) Sucks. He sucks. I don't know. (laughs) I don't want him to be happy. (laughs) But as a fellow Gemini, I appreciate him. I have to. That's fair. Legally. Legally. (laughs) God, he sucks. He is famous for uh, some of the buildings like the Falling Water, which is a house uh, inside of a waterfall. Very kind cool. Of. Love it. Love to see it. And he also built the Guggenheim Museum in New York. So those are like the most known buildings of his. He was one of the people who was kind of like the one of the pioneers of the prairie school or prairie style movement for architecture, as well as he came up with this concept called Usonian uh, Homes in uh, Broadacre City, and we're going to talk about all of this as we move forward into the episode. But he's built like a thousand structures, or designed up to a thousand structures, and he's built many of them, among which were like offices, churches, even skyscrapers, hotels, etc. He just had a lot of ideas. And all of them were flawed, but (laughs) we'll get into it. Elena is not pulling punches today. <laughs> Honestly, he was a shitty person. And If you want someone to talk nicely about Frank Lloyd Wright, attend an art history class. This is not that. Or watch a B- BBC documentary about him. Vomit. Vomit. <laughs> Anyways, Frank Lloyd Wright is famous because he believed in the harmony with humanity and the environment. And he had this philosophy he called organic architecture it's not even based on nature no but he would have been a good hobbit that's fair if adultery was a part of hobbit (laughs) also because all of his roofs were very small (laughs) makes sense um to put it into historical context uh someone made a, a a really apt point about it in one of the one of the podcasts that elena you recommended to me I think it was in the um, Meet Your Heroes episode where she was uh, putting it into context of Frank Lloyd Wright was born two years after the end of the American Civil War. Yeah. Baffling. And also, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright is 20 years older than the Eiffel Tower. That's wild. (laughs) Like, if you think about history, (laughs) uh, it's bad. And it makes my brain hurt because you think about Frank Lloyd Wright and his designs and you're like, no, that's, that's very modern. It's, it's, it's very modern. It's, it's very standard. It's state of the art. Uh. When in reality, um, he's creating things based off of 
a lifetime of uh self-importance largely but mostly like his his own concepts of what architecture can do and also the rise of modernism in the US especially post World War 1 which we'll get into but also like how glass and steel both inspired and upset him so <laughs> So we'll get into it. But just know that a lot of his works were reactionary to these very big, rapid changes in the United States architecture. And and globally as well, but largely in the U.S., where you have all of these different ideas and all of these different philosophies and all of these different schools popping up and kind of, you know, allowing this boy from middle of nowhere, Wisconsin, to kind of... Grow. Let's get into his early life because I could, I have something to add to that, but I also want to talk about his family. <laughs> <laughs> Let, I'll just I'll I'll end my part by saying that in 1991 he's recognized by the American Institute of Architectures as quote the greatest American architect of all time. Uh, in 2019, a selection of his work became listed as World Heritage sites as the yes. quote. 20th century architecture of Frank Lloyd Wright. He's very loved in, architect in the arch architecture world. But let's take it back to the beginning. His dad was a musician, oh, kind William. of, but he changed, he changed his jobs a lot. Um, and he had three kids from his previous marriage. And his mom, who was his second wife, uh, Anna, was... Uh, Fiercely independent. To put it mildly. And, uh, yeah. An eccentric, and she, one might say. One might say. One might say. She came from this family of Welsh kind of aristocrats-ish. Kind well, of. they were rich. She came from this rich family, the Wrights. She was very abusive no. to her husband and stepchildren. No. Uh, but, he, but she adored Frank. She adored him to the point where she kind of instilled a lot of ideas uh, in him that later led to him becoming an architect and becoming the person that he was. First of all, she, from the beginning, thought, uh, was like, oh, this child is going to be an architect and kind of shoved him towards that direction. And, well, she taught him the Unitarian uh, health, uh, faith Due to that, Frank was very religious, and the philosophies that she taught him and the way she treated him kind of made him into the spoiled brat, essentially, that he was at age, like, 80, and moving forward from, from this time as well, <laughs> all well, the time. You know, it's Frank's own son that says that Anna helped Frank become what he would never cease to be, quote, an overgrown, undisciplined boy with a genius for architecture, unquote. However, when you say that your son can't attend regular school and must be trapped in a room with colorful wunderblocks, i.e. cheap-ass Legos, it's yeah. not... It's like it's like saying that Michael Jackson was born to be a musician when his parents locked the Jackson Five in a room and forced them to be performers. It's like uh, 
Tiger Woods's dad saying that he had to be a golfer every single day of his goddamn early childhood. It's not, <laughs> oh, there's greatness, and then there's also, like, yeah. living a life by proxy. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to be an architect. No. <laughs> what? You made him she an architect. shoved it down his throat. <laughs> All he knows are blocks, Anna. All he knows are blocks. Which also, I will add, does add to the modernist aspect of um, his work, right? If his entirety of his early childhood is built around putting one square brick on another square brick on a longer rectangular brick, you kind of start to see the forms of... Modernism? Yeah, and it's also like, even though he was like a pioneer in many things in architecture, his style was still quite old-fashioned at the time. At the time. Because of still, I think. (laughs) Well, again, not going to school doesn't help. We'll we'll get there. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) I think he was very old-school in his architecture because of the ideals that his mom put put into him and because at the time everyone was all of the architects were very towards this new style of building which is like skyscrapers which is like concrete and steel and moving towards like whole designs of cities that are based on one principle and stuff like that And in Frank's work, he wanted every single piece of his work to be different from the last one. Yes. And while that is admirable, it's also kind of his downfall because (laughs) he never got schooling for architecture. He never learned any of these things. What are you talking about? He stared at bricks and pictures of cathedrals, <laughs> Elena. That's all you need. That's not, that's not enough. That's not enough. <laughs> if you want an overview on, like, steel and concrete and all that fun stuff, we kind of talk about uh, another famous architect, Le Corbusier, in one of our earlier episodes, The Color That Corrupts, uh, which yes, is episode color. 17. Yes. And that's a really good overview on, like, what modernism developed from, as, like, a yeah. an additional listen. <laughs> but. But he never got sc- official schooling. He didn't get, he, he is, we don't even know if he got, like, high school diploma. D- uh, doubt. <laughs> but he did go to college, probably. For a few years, but didn't graduate. <laughs> Dropped out relatively quickly. Went to University of yeah. Wisconsin uh, for structural engineering, I believe, or civil engineering, Something some sort like of engineering, that, yeah. and then decided that he wasn't into it. But you know what? Fair, <laughs> super yeah. fair. But that didn't stop. That didn't stop poor uh, Frank, and in the slightest, actually, because in no. 1887 he moved to Chicago. <laughs> Where, as one does. As, as one does. A small boy from Wisconsin moves to Chicago. 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 I love Chicago. I was just in Chicago. I love Chicago. <laughs> but there, he kind of, mm, he kind of cons his way into jobs realistically. Mm. And, and he, uh, I don't know if you've noticed it, but even the internet is very forgiving in saying that he studied engineering. 
but they never go so far as to say that he graduated with an engineering degree, because he didn't. But, like, he did the thing where he was like, yes, I attended many courses at the University of Wisconsin, and I know exactly what it is I'm talking about. And there is something to be said about bullshitting your way through life that I love and appreciate for him. But, like... You you don't want the person who was building your house to have not studied how to build a house. I disagree. Do you? To, to a small part. To a small part. Because as long as there are people on the team who understand what's going on. And but like, were there? For, for <laughs> so long. Well, I mean, if they all took the Frank approach. But like, if you, if you think about it, especially during this time period, the, the ideas, the, uh, the person who designs your house can come up with anything. The person who puts your house together better know how houses get put together. But, like, you don't need a college degree to be a handyman. You don't need to have a college degree to be on, like, job sites, right? And if we're talking about construction and architecture, the person who is, like, project manager uh, hopefully knows how to run the mathematical calculations, but Frank was more of, like, a draftsman and was more... Towards the later half of his life, it gets a little frustrating and complicated. But, you know, you fake it till you make it. College is all about gaining experience. And if you're going to get gain experience on the job, that kind of counts. It was his, the fact that he was a raging narcissist who took no feedback or criticism that makes me hesitant <laughs> and skeptical about Frank Lloyd Wright. Not because of the fact that he didn't go to college. Okay, <laughs> you don't need fair. to go to college. I stare at my <laughs> master's degree every day and I go, why this? <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> The best thing that happened was you. Yeah. Same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Steph. I am the greatest thing that happened. I to am you. the best. <laughs> See, now you get it. <laughs> take that approach and take it through life. Y- you'll have hey, a more interesting hey, I'm, experience. I'm only copying Frank, man. It's a, it's an homage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've taken inspiration for I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But in Chicago, he worked for Joseph Lyman Silsby as a Mm -hmm. apprentice draftsman. And then Mm -hmm. afterwards, he went to work for Alder and Sullivan. And Sullivan would later become his Liebermeister or his dear master. Yes. Yeah. Sullivan is another very big name in architecture at the time. Still technically is. Yeah. Yeah. He's dead, but still technically. (laughs) <laughs> they're all dead they're all um, dead thank god <laughs> yeah uh, louis henry sullivan was kind of considered as the father of skyscrapers he taught a lot to frank who later on when he started working on his own implemented the things uh the ideas uh, given to him by Sullivan in his works. Um, although he never admitted that he was ever inspired by anyone but himself. Well, you know, it's he like did. the Picasso saying, the uh, the good artists copy and great artists steal. And he did steal. We'll talk about it. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Like I said, um, uh, Frank did not grow up in the healthiest of environments. So, nope. what do you want from me? <laughs> More. More than this. Please, thanks. 
We are not gonna go get into like heavy details of Frank's a personal life. I wish we would. I wish we would, but there ha- there are plenty of uh, podcast episodes that do talk about that, and all of them will be listed in our sources. Yes. But some of them are like, the dollop has the, done God. the episode, meet, the, <laughs> meet Your Heroes has done an episode, like you said, as well as uh, 99% Invisible has done several episodes about uh, Frank and his work. So... If you want to learn about the chandelier room, listen to them. Yes. <laughs> but he did have a chandelier room. He did he have a chandelier room. He was an overspender. That boy spent money like it was his goddamn right. And you know what? He Love to see it. He did not know the value of money. He did. He had no idea. He used to <laughs> overpay for things and underpay for the others and had like a bunch a bungled up like dollar bills in his pockets and like crumpled dollar bills that he had to uncrumple to see what number that was on the, the I dollar, hate, like what amount the dollar was. I hate Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> he was the worst in every single way. But he, just to run quickly through some of his life, because uh, if we talk about everything, we're going to be here for years. I wish. So he, this is for your sake, had, guys. <laughs> he had his first wife, who was Catherine Lee or Kitty Tobin. Uh, they had like six children together, but then he uh, met this other woman who was married. Well, during one of his projects, architecture projects, he met the the uh, wife of the client that he was working for, and yes. he was like, "Oh, oh, hello." Hi. And at this point, he had been mm, fired from the Sullivan firm because he had been taking independent contracts, which uh, was which a breach was of contract. Which he was not allowed to. Shocking, <laughs> surprisingly enough. So so he was, he was out on his own. He was doing his own thing. He was an independent contractor. Your, your wild spirit, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Um, very dream home designer Sims career, if you ask me. <laughs> um, but then he meets... Miriam. Mema. Mema. Oh, Mema. Yeah. Maud. 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 This is, this is Mema. Yeah. yeah. This is Mema. This is Mema. Sorry. There's just so <laughs> many of them. <laughs> there, there is. There's too many of them. So Mema. Mema. He, uh, she also has two kids. Mm-hmm. And she, they start having an affair. And everyone knows about it in the neighborhood. So he has a terrible reputation uh, they at some point go to Europe together for like a year, leaving their children behind. Um, he keeps asking his wife for a divorce, divorce but she, uh, Kitty is saying like, no, fuck you, you're not getting a divorce. You have, I have six kids with you. No, you're not getting a divorce. <laughs> yeah. Frank, Frank's a piece of shit. <laughs> Frank is terrible. He also is kind of like uh, like repeating the patterns of his childhood in the sense of, abandoning his own kids like his father abandoned him mm, is i think that was also largely due to anna i don't i you know you get beat by your wife a handful of times and she tells you to get i think it was also that healthy environment that uh kept yeah. the dad away that's fair frank frank did not <laughs> quite understand what a healthy male role model looked like fair but also crazy was what he knew and loved also, his dad didn't leave the family with a $900 grocery bill and gave it to Frank. No. 
But poor David. <laughs> poor David. God, it's just, it's so funny. And obviously we could get into it, but I think we we really need to get into prairie houses, mostly just for the sake of like, what was the only redeeming factor of Frank Lloyd Wright during this time? <laughs> because yeah. the uh, the sex and drugs and rock and roll were certainly not bad. <laughs> just know that it's, he's not a nice, he's not a loving husband. He's not. Not in a single Unless way. Unless you're Mima, which at yeah. this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so prairie school. Yeah, prairie school, because otherwise I'm going to talk about how Frank said that he should have two wives. It's fine. Which is fine. But typically when the other, when when everyone involved is in on it. Yeah. Not because they've been. It has been to be consensual. God, imagine the consenting adults thing just being <sighs> taken into account at any point in the story. Not once. Anyways. Not once. <laughs> Not even do his clients consented. No, anyway. <laughs> they got go- they got gaslit into so many things. Yes, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. It's just it baffles the mind. It truly, he honest to God baffles the mind because you sit and you think about it and you're just like, how can one man have so much power? <laughs> and it's because history is extremely forgiving. Yeah. Anyways, prairie schools. So, Wright basically established his own firm after leaving Sullivan. After like getting said. fired. After, after getting after, fired. Yeah, that's fair to say. <laughs> after getting fired for a thing that he knew that he shouldn't have done, but did anyways. Uh-huh. Started his own firm, and he moved to a different building. And we changed buildings then. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and he worked alongside several other architects who were very interested in arts and crafts movement at the, that was going on at the time. And together, they they kind of formed this prairie school or developed this prairie style. And during this time, basically, there are four houses that can be seen as like the prairie style that he made at least in this period, which is like 1900 and 1901. Um, two of them are the Hickox and Bradley houses, that, and they were the, they were the last uh, transitional step between Wright and Prairie creations, Wright's early designs and Prairie uh, creations. And then there are other houses like Thomas House and the Willitis House uh, that are more... Prairie style. Now, what is prairie style? Because I've said this like five billion times already, and you're like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Elena, please <Prairie>. explain. <laughs> is this little house on the prairie? Are we all wearing uh, cotton dresses made from flower no, no. dresses? Like, what, what, what's going on, Elena? What kind of prairie? Basically, these houses, as Frank said, were, quote, married to the ground. Vomit. Quote. <laughs> These are basically these houses that have a lot of uh, characteristics that specifically like uh, they are very spread out over the lots and they're very flat and they also have like flat roofs um, and rows rows of windows overhanging eaves and bands of stone, wood or brick across the surface. Essentially, these buildings sometimes included, like, strong geometry uh, shapes or, like, large 
ch- central cent- well central chimneys <laughs> which is which is um the the central chimney also correlates with a central hearth so a fireplace yes. in the center of the home which becomes yeah. a defining frank lloyd wright characteristic and he also liked to do like open floor plans and as uh, asymmetric floor plans uh as well as like connected indoor and outdoor spaces and um these sorry <laughs> <laughs> and these kind did of you, motives. did your brain motifs yeah, it, it motifs yes. did your brain just have a stroke <laughs> it did just a hard reset <laughs> it needed a minute <laughs> You were like, do I want to talk about this anymore? Or do I want to throw my computer out the window? Basically. That's fair. They also had these motifs, for example, like uh, one shape or plant that was fo- formed through and uh, explored through different pieces of furniture or wood carvings and plaster. And he used a lot of glass and uh, other elements, other similar elements in, in his buildings. But these prairie houses, while they were an idea, maybe okay. Some of the things that went into the houses, for example, the flat roofs, mm-hmm. caused a lot of problems because the territory that he was building these buildings in, which is like Chicago area, gets a lot of snow. So Illinois is a very cold place just in general. Right. If this yes. had been like Arizona or or certain parts of New Mexico, even even certain uh, skitterings in Texas, you wouldn't have to worry about this thing called snow. And nope. if you have lived in New England or if you have a European background of any sort and you kind of know the, the very triangle shaped roofs, ones with the very steep pitches because surprise surprise snow falls every winter and snow has to fall off the roof so it doesn't threaten the integrity of the roof because snow is heavy (laughs) and heavy snowfall wet also very (laughs) wet (laughs) you don't see a lot of flat roofs in canada you know like it's not if if it's a snowy place there's it's a pitched roof of some variety but not for frank no no you got a slightly steeped roof, at most. And that's where we have all the problems come in. Listen, just because it's a leaky roof doesn't mean... <laughs> it's in my house. <laughs> just, it's so funny. Um, a lot of it was the materials he used. A lot of it was the way that it was implemented. A lot of it was just because of the fact that you're, you he did not consider the architecture for the environment. So and you would think he would because his whole architecture ideals is around the environment. Well, and he did use a lot of wood. He just also used a lot of really porous stone. And he was also like experimenting with different materials, which whichever is fine. Great. <laughs> it's, it's fine. Mm. But then you experiment and afterwards you build a building. Eh. You don't experiment by building the building. And some people go to college before they get a hands-on job experience. <laughs> These things are the same, Ellen. <laughs> uh, uh. Um, like the leakiness of Frank Lloyd Wright's ha- roofs are legendary. 
Um, There are so many hysterical stories of, like, people calling Frank after a really bad rainstorm or a really bad snow and or just dinner or just dinner (laughs) and get declaring that like fuck you my roof is leaking and he'd be like yes and move your chair (laughs) (laughs) i will say there's that so uh the article that you gave me was very funny where it's called it's by william cronin uh consistent unity the passion of frank lloyd wright there's a quote there where one of Wright's cousins, uh, a Mrs. Richard Lloyd Jones, responded to an inquiry about her own leaky roof by saying, quote, This is what happens when you leave a work of art out in the rain. Fuck you. What? <sighs> no. <laughs> it's a house. The <laughs> thing is, the thing is, architecture is art. Yes, and that's why we talk about it on our Not Art podcast. We love (laughs) architecture. We wholeheartedly agree. However, if your roof is leaking (laughs) and the architect that you employed, that you paid real physical dollars to, says... so many dollars. Suck it up, buttercup. (laughs) Maybe maybe you're not the problem. There's different skill sets when you're doing, like, visual art, uh, like painting or sculptures or digital art, etc. Or and different when you're doing architecture. With architecture, you have to do a lot of math. You have to do a lot of engineering and like visualization, a lot of these skill sets that you might not need in the other art spheres. And these skill sets are essential because you are building something that is supposed to last for more than 20 years, for more than 50 years, for more than 100 years. Depends on what you're going for, but ideally for a very long time. And if you don't take into account all of these little things that people need in their everyday lives, the comforts they need, the the stability they need, that then you're not a good architect. You need to work for your client. It, it's kind of like customer service. I don't want to say this, but it kind, well, it of, kind is. of is. It kind of is because you're building for someone else. If he was doing jobs for like corporations or stuff like that, which he later does, uh, it's different. But when you're building for individual families who are going to live in that house for maybe generations, you need to take into consideration to provide for all of those generations comfort, uh, stability, like I said, and and like general not leaky roofs. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Um, Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright is the most important architect, the first American architect that has ever lived. We are so grateful to Frank Lloyd Wright. Wow, he taught us so much about modern architecture and an advanced aesthetic. <laughs> I hate him. I'm sorry. I hate him. I hate him. I hate him. <laughs> it just, it, it humors me to no end. Because, like, the Prairie Style House is a really cool idea. I am also a subscriber of the concept of, like, the hearth should be the center point of the home, right? And in a lot of places, especially on, like, one-story homes, because that's largely... 
That's largely what Frank really appreciated doing was, like, one-story homes. And you also have to take into account the time period that it is. A lot of it was so that housewives had more room to look over their um, families. Or. Or how Frank himself says. (laughs) Let me find that quote. Where was it? Uh. This is later on. This is with uh, Usonian houses, and we're going to get into them just in a second. But he wanted, essentially, in all of his houses, to build uh, plans that were allotted uh, the woman of the house a quote-quote workspace, as he often called the kitchen, mm-hmm. where she could keep track of and be available for the children and or guests in the dining room. How considerate. Thank you, Frank. How considerate. But so, Mayma, right? We, uh, Frank fucks off to Europe with Mayma after leaving his family and after she left her family. Um, and they're, they're in Europe mostly because, you know, Frank is on a book tour and they can live out of the uh, spotlight for a little while. And when they come back, they decide to move to Wisconsin. Mayma files for divorce and gets not only that, but full custody of the children. And Frank at the time has a lot of damage to his reputation because of, I don't know, abandoning his family to go be with his married mistress in Europe. (laughs) But he tells a reporter, quote, laws and rules are made for the average. The ordinary man cannot live without rules to guide his conduct. It is infinitely, infinitely more difficult to live without rules, but that is what the real, the really honest, sincere thinking man is compelled to do. Two women were necessary for a man of artistic mind. One to be the mother of his children, the other a mental companion, inspiration, and soulmate. Fuck you, sir. Fuck <laughs> you, sir. Um, he was the worst. So Maymont gets a divorce, and Kitty won't give Frank a divorce, and he's like, fine, be that way. So he moves uh, to Spring Green, Wisconsin, after his mother buys land for him, and Wright and Maymont build Taliesin. Uh, named after the Welsh house. poet, magician, and priest. All the things you want to be. All the things I want to be every day, every day of my goddamn life. The Taliesin was built in 1911. And, you know, it's, it's, it's lauded to be this like grandiose palace. Local reporters call it the love castle or the, uh, the love cottage, castle of love type places because it's essentially a sin palace, right? It's a, it's an adulterous man with his mistress. Just having a grand old time uh, with, you know, Maymaw's two kids just having a blast, having sex, doing their own thing. They're near a college town or Spring Green itself was a, like considered a college town. And there was like this huge uproar from the local uh, student community who was like, man, this sucks. We're going to tar party you, which essentially just threatens like throwing tar <laughs> All over the home. They had, so the Frank and Mayma had to like have guards stationed to keep, to keep the house safe. But unfortunately, the call was coming from inside the house when it came to 
uh, actual danger. And this is where we become a true crime podcast. Because what's so interesting about the Frank Lloyd Wright story is the amount of tragedy that you can shove into one Midwest story. Now, tension in the house had been growing. There was one... Oh, where's his name? Yeah. Well, handyman and butler Julian Carlton, who had been working for uh, Frank Lloyd Wright for a little while, at least for, you know, since Taliesin had opened. And he had this growing paranoia towards the idea that he would be fired. He had a bit of a, a hot temper. He had been spoken to on several occasions about his conduct and uh, was really, like his wife noted later, that there was definitely this, like, growing tension. And that tension finally broke on August 15th, 1914, where Mema, her kids, her parents, and several other house guests were eating lunch. Julian poured gasoline and set fire to the living quarters of Taliesin. And for the people who escaped, he murdered them with a hatchet. Of the folks who died, Mayma, her two children, her parents, and workers on the property, as well as one other who had died, or who survived the initial attack but died from their injuries due to being burned. Yeah. Um, as for Carlton, he snuck down to the furnace of the home where he drank, was found after he had consumed hydrochloric acid, as you do after a murder. This one does. Um, in an attempt to kill himself. And the people who found him nearly lynched him on the spot, but he was taken to the Dodgeville jail. Carlton died in prison from starvation, and the accounts make it seem like it might have been deliberate starvation. However, considering he had his entire throat and jugular burnt out from hydrochloric acid, it might have just been the acid. Yeah. Frank is away in Chicago at this time, and when he ultimately does return to the horrific scene, he also returns to the press not treating it lightly, or kindly, for that matter. Uh, a lot of them call this divine retribution. There are headlines that say, Six slain in Love Castle. A lot of people believe that Frank Lloyd Wright deserved this. Mm. Which, you know. Um, <laughs> accounts say that after uh, Maymaw's death, Frank goes a little off the deep end, which I believe is understandable. But he very, very quickly gets gets with another woman. Almost immediately after the, the burning down of Taliesin, he soon starts getting these um, love lays uh, sympathy letters. Yes. Or as they're called, steamy sympathy letters. <laughs> um, from uh, this woman called Maud Miriam, or Miriam Noel. She is this... Interesting, cool, spiritual, bohemian world traveler who was, you know, expressing her sympathies towards Frank and his loss. And also getting a little hot and heavy in his uh, DMs as, as, as they were. 
he, uh, I'm gonna rush through this a bit because because there's a lot left. <laughs> there's a lot. That's the problem with this. There's the that's the like legitimate, honest to god, heart of like hand of god problem with this. We still have so much more to go. But yes, he, uh, Frank gets with Miriam and they're together. But Miriam has a, a morphine addiction. Um, and finally, Kitty grants him a divorce a few years later. But as soon as they get married, uh, Miriam and uh, Frank, a few year, a few months later, they divorce again. Uh, or they break up. They don't divorce. Um, okay. So Kitty grants Frank a divorce in 1922 on the condition that he must wait a year to marry Miriam. He does marry Miriam, though. And then yeah. a year later, they are divorced because of her morphine addiction. And then he gets with Olga. Who is 32 um, years his junior. <laughs> they start dating, but uh, also Frank is still married. And as soon as Miriam finds out that he is dating someone else, even though she was ready to, to get a divorce with him, she do- she, she says, no, no more. And <laughs> she says, actually, them. fuck you. <laughs> And starts harassing Frank and Olga. Uh, the, he, she uh, tries to break into their home multiple times. She charges Frank with adultery and alienation of affection. She also kind of uh, makes, uh, makes the police arrest them when they're not in Wisconsin on the grounds of the, them breaking the Man Act, which is kind of like transporting a woman over a border of state for prostitution reasons, which is not why. They were outside of Wisconsin, but yeah, <laughs> they spent two days in jail and then were uh, let go. In the end, Miriam finally grants him a divorce, and then he and Olga kind of start living their lives together, married. And so now they marry. Into- they marry in 1928. Yes. And for those who know their American history, 1929 is when the Great Depression hits. So Frank Lloyd Wright can no longer afford or can no longer pursue his um, traditional prairie-style home because it typically leans to slightly more expensive materials. They might be shitty designs, but they're still very expensive shitty designs. So he creates this concept called the Unisonian or the uh, Usonian house. And it's a low-budget house built for middle-class families that were meant specifically for people looking for affordable housing. Um, He took it upon himself to make them, because it would cut costs, but it didn't quite work out how he thought. While the majority of them were successful or somewhat successful in coming in close to budget, he frequently set up circumstances that pushed his clients into paying more than they had intended. He had this textile concrete block system where you would pre-cast a set of blocks And it would create a fabrication as an infinite in color, texture, variety, as in the quote, fat rug, where you could color bricks so you could save money on paint, or you could make it textured so you saved money on stucco, et cetera, et cetera. And after World War II, he updated that concrete black system to the Unisonian Automatic which created things like the natural house in 1954, where the original blocks are made on site by ramming concrete into wood or metal wraparound forms with one outside face, one rear or inside face that would offer the lightness. He 
creates this concept of like sandwiching wood siding and plywood cores to create like a shift between what is outside facing and what is inside facing, what's private and what's public. And your public face was a fortress, whereas your private face was a soft, airy, inviting, entertaining space, essentially. As in the prairie houses, Usonian houses and living areas had a fireplace as a point of focus. Bedrooms were typically isolated and relatively small, um, which encouraged families together in the main living areas. It influenced countless post-war developments, as well as um, the kitchen, <laughs> or, or I'm sorry, the, the, work. um, the workplace. The Fuck workplace. him. Fuck him. And, <laughs> and it, was, it was wildly exciting. Two flaws remain. There were no working roofs. In fact, if your roof flooded or if your roof, le- if your roof leaked, you were more likely to be told that you built the house wrong, more so than saying that, Frank Lloyd Wright's design was wrong. Yeah, we run into this leaky roof issue in a lot of his works, uh, specifically like several of his churches that he made were Mm -hmm. terrible and leaked all the time. Um, And he also had like, he he didn't like attics for whatever reason. And And he didn't like garages. And he didn't like garages. He made the carports... Uh, which were kind of like a garage, but outside. <laughs> like a roof uh, for your like car. A, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> they were used, uh, they were made by the using this cantilever, cantilever? Yeah, cantilever system. Cantilever system. And he uses cantilever system in a lot of his works. Uh, and basically it's like elevated or... How do I describe this? You you're using you're using a central pillar, typically the the heaviest the brick object, your fireplace, as yeah. the grounding force for an outside force. So you are essentially creating a balcony or a carport in this case, right? Of an a jutting out position, but instead of putting pillars, you are grounding it through very specific and necessary tight craftsmanship to which can be done it and it can be done extremely successfully it requires a carpenter and it requires an engineer that knows what they're doing and has a lot of skill which is typically not very cheap and he didn't have any of that (laughs) but he really liked his cantilevers he loved them (laughs) <laughs> in the carports he used them because uh of the wonky measurements they frequently like sagged and then we run into the same problem when we're talking about falling water uh, but no garages because your car doesn't need a garage not I guess. even in the winter <laughs> no especially not in the winter you gotta you have a roof you have a roof over its head. It's fine. It's it's, fine. it's not a horse. Literally, his whole reasoning behind it was that because horses deserved carriages, but cars did not. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. He designed uh, this. He came up with this concept of uh, Rosenwald School, which was a school made for black children uh, at the time. He created it in 1928. And it was never built, but it was... 
basically a remodeling of the whole building uh, to be central more. And in the center will be like a pool and around it uh, would be the school. And the, the pool would kind of bring together the children. And um, it was a very uh, cool idea in the sense of like, he wanted to emphasize that uh, he wanted the children to learn through uh, playing and physical activity. So a very like progressive uh, thought of learning, but his other thoughts were not so progressive because he went on to, in his writings, to refer to this design as for the blackies. And he uh, characterizes black people as being childlike, enjoying music and dance, bright colors. Um, and he references, yeah, makes reference to darkies. Well, I'm um, glad this is his last and only attempt at making a school. Thank God. Yes. And, uh, yeah, just so you know that he was also a racist. <laughs> Uh, but what do you expect? And also said that the reason that we were in World War II to begin with is because Jews said that we should be. Yeah. yeah. Gotta love an anti-Semite. Gotta love a racist. Gotta... Uh, but the fellowship, <laughs> aka the cult, is mm -hmm. what comes next in his Taliesin Fellowship! Um, the Taliesin Fellowship was actually a thing up until, like, last year, basically. Yeah. Um, so, it lasted... But the whole premise of it was Frank and Olga didn't have money during uh, the Great Depression. So Olga comes up with this great idea where it's like, well, Frank, what if you created an architecture school where, where these kids came and they paid you to teach them how to do architecture? But instead of just architecture, we make it a, a holistic approach. <laughs> Mm. So that's exactly what they did. Um, in nine in nineteen thirty two, um, Frank and Olga put out a call for students to come to Taliesin to study and work under Frank, so that they could learn architecture and um, spiritual development. And this was during the darkest years for architecture and architecture in American history, right? Because of the Great Depression, the American like the country's financial system had collapsed and there were no private homes being built because people could barely afford to feed their families, much less shelter their families. Mm -hmm. And all of those architectural projects that had been started during the boon of the late 1920s, that Gilded Era, were halted due to lack of funds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so Frank was not only using these youthful, hopeful attendants to uh, help keep Taliesin out of foreclosure, but it was also to help reinvent himself as a important figure in architecture. And, you know, the first year, 23 students came to live and work, and uh, they were worked uh, egregiously, one might say. There's only one positive quote that exists about it. <laughs> And it's ironically the only quote that is on Wikipedia of it. Shocking. <laughs> quote, Frank is devoid of consideration and has a blind spot regarding others' qualities. Yet I believe that a year in his studio would be worth any sacrifice. End quote. And like, 
If that's a positive. I guess. I put up with abuse so that I could be better. But it also comes back to like, but is it because you're better or is it because you were like feeding lunch to a great architect? <laughs> like there's so much considerable controversy that exists around the living conditions and the education and the education status or quality of the fellows, right? Um and not only that, but Frank stole his students' ideas. Yes. <laughs> um he used them as servants. He kicked people to the curb after their fellowships were over. He had of the young of like of the few women that actually did come to study under him. He dressed them in milkmaid outfits and had them deliver store-bought bread and milk to his workers whenever they happened to be, you know, on site. And then uh, you had to go to Sunday morning chapel regardless of the fact if you were an atheist or practicing Judaism. It didn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) And on top of it, the fellowship, like the Taliesin Fellowship was... um, the source of workers in Wright's later years, right? Because, like, he would take on the contract and then be too old and sickly to actually do it, so he'd throw one of his fellows on it. And not only do they now have to do, like, more work than they're comfortable doing because they're... Qualified for. Because they're in training. Yeah. (laughs) But now they're being berated by Frank if it doesn't go well. So if your roof leaks, it's the fellow's fault. (sighs) But, but... To be fair to the fellows, it wasn't their designs that they were implementing. It was Frank's designs they were implementing. Well, so, the designs that he stole from them. So at the end yeah, of the day... <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's <laughs> no, fair. Frank, Frank just uh, was very mean and very crotchety. And there's a whole lot of other sexual exploitation that I wish we had the time to get into. <laughs> Yeah. Just know that Olga was very involved in a lot of their lives, and not just on a spiritual level. <sighs> the fellowship, or the Taliesin Fellowship, evolved into the School of Architecture at Taliesin, which was an accredited school until it's closed under acrimonious circumstances in 2020. R.I. fucking pieces, my dude. And now let's talk about the main two that we mentioned in the first place. Uh, just a sex cult. I just, I don't. <laughs> let's talk about falling water. Let's talk about falling water. Essentially, falling water was hooked up to him by one of his students. One of his students was Edgar Kaufman Jr. And he suggested to his father, Ed, Edgar Kaufman Sr. Uh, to work with Wright and to discuss ideas with him. And that's how he landed the job in the first place. Um, and in, uh, he built this, this house called Falling Water uh, in Mill Run, Pennsylvania. And he was 67 at the time when he built this. And it was kind of like the turning point of his career because by this time he was already forgotten. No one really cared about him anymore. And this project made him in made him return back to the spotlight essentially and uh, this house <laughs> this house was a marvel to everyone it was a house that was built into it was built into waterfall so so he implements his organic architecture uh practice into this house at its like peak 
so he makes uh, uh, he uses a lot of glass he literally puts a waterfall in his house he um, has no uh, basically no walls are facing the falls only a central uh, stone core for the fireplace and stone columns are there and uh, the he he made it into he also used the cantilevers system here as well so the first uh balcony was shorter than the second balcony and that caused problems in the future because the top balcony started to sag of course it did Ugh. of course it did my man is it a frank lloyd wright house <laughs> yeah and um but even before he decided to make it um, or even while he was making it, the Kaufman Sr. was very concerned about the structure, so he uh, made some of some engineers kind of measure uh, how everything was gonna go, and the engineers were like, "Oh no, don't do this! It's gonna it's gonna fall to shit." Uh, so Kaufman convinced uh, Wright to put more um, steel rods. Uh, while building, so the the building would be a bit more stable, and he, uh, reluctantly he did, but in the end, if he hadn't, the house would have fallen down, um, and that even that didn't really say, save it one hundred percent because, like I said, the top balcony was sagging, and there were a lot of cracks that appeared through time, and like it wasn't very. Um, stable for like floods and stuff and natural elements even though it's organic architecture based on nature fuck you sir um <laughs> but it had to be it, there had to be a lot of like renovations and reconstructions done because of how badly structured it was uh, though i think it's quite pretty i'll give him that i think falling water <laughs> is gorgeous i yes. think when it comes to like you know, a lifetime of ideals coming together in one structure. Okay, I like it. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I'll give you. I'll even give you the Guggenheim. We can. We can jump right into that. But like, I don't. You're not, sir. <laughs> you had people feeding you, doing your laundry, tilling your crops, so that you could yell at them. He believed himself to be a genius. And and, and he called himself a genius. He yes. called himself a genius. He was so aggressive in his own self-importance that he, he even so like arrogant. told the American Alliance of Architects that he was the most important architect who have ever lived. Anyways, the He Google. was a narcissist. <laughs> he was a narcissist. He was raised by a narcissist and he was a narcissist. Yeah. I don't I don't I can't. <laughs> and what's worse, there's there's a fantastic quote in the article that you sent me where, and this is talking about Frank Lloyd Wright, right? Um, mm -hmm. Where quote, here was a man whose self love seemed limitless, whose ego apparently knew no bounds, who nonetheless hungered for the validation he could only receive from admirers, disciples, and lovers. An extreme proponent of individualism and personal independence, he did his best work only when buttressed by soulmates who believed in his talent even more unshakably than he did. Yeah. Wright well, said it. 
said of himself that, quote, he couldn't live, move, and have his being, so it seemed, without a heart-to-heart comrade, end quote. Sounds healthy, my dude. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Anyways, the Guggenheim. (laughs) The Guggenheim. (laughs) Guggenheim was one of his last buildings. Yes. He built it like six months. Uh, Well, he was building it for a long time. Um, Starting from 1943 up until its opening, which was six months after he passed away in 1959. Um, And... Well, we all we have all seen Guggenheim. <laughs> it's basically We all this, love New York. We all love New York. Uh it's stacked white cylinder of reinforced concrete swirling towards the sky. Uh and inside is one great space of continuous floor and there's like spiral staircase or like spiral walkway that leads all the way up. And from these walkways are break-off rooms where you can see artworks, and on the walls themselves you can see artworks. Um, there are several problems with this one as well, <laughs> mm-hmm. as as one does. From the beginning, a lot of the people, a lot of the artists were very concerned that their works would have to be hung in like specific way for people to be able to see them and appreciate them well. Also, it was very overwhelming overwhelmingly um dominant so that kind of took away from the artworks that were placed in the building um and i remember i was 10 years old when i was in new york and i remember the guggenheim and going into guggenheim and the building but i don't remember any of the artworks i saw in there because i was so impressed by the building hey listen (laughs) and i think that's valid (laughs) i think that's fair but there were structural things wrong with this too. It had like a lot of paints on the outside, and once they took it off, they uncovered a lot of cracks. So it had to be like extensively renovated. Um, what's also really interesting is that the reason why things like Falling Water and Guggenheim have been able to withstand the test of time is largely because they had the budget for it, right? The Guggenheim yeah. gave like a blank check to design this. Yes. Despite the fact that Wright also had a problem with the Manhattan's building code administrators, who argued with him over structural issues, um, which, like, included that glass dome, which is quite famous for the Guggenheim, had to be reduced and redesigned to include concrete ribs that are extensions of structural pillars. Ugh. (laughs) enough! The most exciting part of... All of this is that um, between 2005 and 2008, the Guggenheim Museum underwent an exterior renovation where 11 coats of paint were removed from the original surface and revealed many cracks due to climate reasons. Yep. Uh, this revelation or this revelation led to extensive research in testing potential repair materials as well as the restoration of the exterior. Love to see it. Love. I. I like. See, Frank Lloyd Wright's designs and concepts are quite lovely. They just require different materials, um, and also a better uh, project manager than Frank Lloyd Wright himself. And we didn't even get into the fact that, like, when Frank Lloyd Wright was invited to the houses that he designed, if you for whatever reason changed your mind about like one or two things, like 
Say you wanted a table. Say you wanted a, a gentil lamp. Say that you wanted like a gorgeous rug somewhere. If Frank didn't like it and it challenged his vision, he would outright remove it or move it. Like, yep. <sighs> yep. He got away with too much. Yeah, he, um, there's a great quote that I want to read to kind of end this off of. Please do. Please let me be free of this nonsense. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's from the article, um, how was it? The Inconstant Unity Passion of Frank Lloyd. Right. (laughs) Quote, how could an organic architect fail to respond to so basic an environmental constraint as the need for a house to fend off winter's cold or the need for its roof to shed water? How could a man of integrity so frequently fail to pay his bills and so often mislead his clients about the bills they themselves would have to pay? How could an artist so devoted to nature surround himself with so much artifice? How could a man so committed to truth so frequently lie? Were these mere inconsistencies foolish and otherwise, or were they deep contradictions, hypocrisies even, in the very soul of Frank Lloyd Wright? End quote. And I think that sums it up. All I'm hearing <laughs> is uh, hashtag Gemini rights. <laughs> for well, you, sure. Not happy for birthday. Happy birthday, Frank. Happy birthday, Frank. Elena, thank thank you. you. Thank you so much for doing this episode with me. Thank you too, Stephanie. I'm not going to take a shower to feel less gross. Because he makes me so uncomfy. And it's fine. It's just... Go, go, if you're, if you're a podcast listener, go listen to podcasts. If you're an article reader, go read some articles. Because it's only, it only gets worse. It we somehow we does. <laughs> we talk about the architecture here because we are technically an art history podcast only Ish. technically but like if you want to get into the bizarre life that was frank lloyd wright's house murder isn't all she wrote <laughs> <laughs> yes like there's there's so many characters that we had to leave out and it's just it's fine it's fine there's so much abuse there's so much abuse so much he literally got on stand, like, took trial once and called himself the most famous architect or the most important architect. And when they were like, well, can you prove it? He was like, well, I'm under oath. I'm like, fuck. Sir, fuck. You. <laughs> for the, <laughs> for the unbridled narcissism that it takes to, uh, completely baffle an entire generation of architects and, Architectural digests and plannings, um, transcripts, newsletters, updates, blog posts, and more. <laughs> Head on over to our website at bywartpod.com. You can also find us on Instagram at bywartpod. And you can find us on Twitter at bywartpod. And you can email us on bywartpod at gmail.com. And of course, you can check us out on Patreon. Our Patreon is the best way to support us if you like the work that we're doing here at BiWAP. Come say hi. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Please don't leave your son with a $900 grocery bill just because you want out of a loveless marriage because you want to go bang another married woman. Yeah, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And remember, when in doubt... (laughs) Titty out. Lovely. 
Lovely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Uh, bye. <laughs> <laughs>